last several years. You know, one of the things we do at the beginning of every new year is that we pick a book of the year that we challenge our church to read through collectively. Now, I'm, I'm well aware of the stats that many of you, when you graduate from high school or college, you made a vow before God, you would never read another book, right? And so one of the things we just say, hey, if you just read one book this year as a church collectively, that God would grow you individually and then God would grow us uh, collectively as the overflow of that. So we've had a book of the year every year for, gosh, I don't know, six or seven years, something like that, maybe even a little longer. So this year uh, we picked for our book of the year a book that's entitled The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it really is a thesis about uh, in a world and culture of loneliness where people have thousands of online friends but no real friends, that uh, hospitality could be the new platform and the new bridge to sharing Christ with people. Here's just a simple reality. You're never going to share Christ with someone if you don't even know their name. That's just probably a reality. And so uh, we would argue and the book would argue that, that maybe the greatest springboard for missions is not the, the local church gathered. Maybe it's your dining room or your driveway that God would use you in your neighborhood in a very intentional gospel way. So uh, the gospel comes with a house key, so they're available today as you leave right there on the table. Also, we just know that Every year, people are looking for devotion uh, books to read through. And so last year, our book of the year was actually a devotional book called New Morning Mercies. Hundreds of people have used this. Our staff has been using this now for a few years. I'm reading through it again this year as a part of my devotional rhythm. So if you're looking for a devotional uh, to use, uh, we've got those available as well to pick up. They're uh, $15 a piece. Uh, I think since the first Sunday of the year, they're running a special. Uh, You can get both of them today for $45. And so I would encourage you to stop by and and grab those. And let's read through this together. If you read one book, uh, we would be super encouraged if you would choose one of these. They said he was like Magic Johnson, but Larry Bird's jump shot. Of all the players and great players who have ever roamed the famed playgrounds of New York City, Lloyd Daniels was said to be, by many, the greatest player who's ever played on a New York City playground. Those who said, well, I'm not totally sure about that, that at the very least, they agreed that Lloyd Daniels was the greatest prospect ever to come out of New York City besides, uh, since the time of a young kid by the name of Lou Alcindor, who later went on to become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The famed coach, Jerry Tarkanian, who coached the UNLV Running Rebels, the San Antonio Spurs, among other teams, said this. He said, Lloyd Daniels, in all my decades of coaching, was the greatest talent I've ever seen on a basketball court. The tales of his legendary feats on the playgrounds were the subject of my favorite book growing up. And the title of the book was called Sweet Pea and Other Playground Legends. And Sweet Pea was the name uh, given to Daniels because of his look. He looked like olive oil, they said. Uh, They said there was nothing sweet, though, about his life that sapped Daniels of his incredible uh, potential. It was a life of violence. It was a life of neglect. It was a life of drug abuse. And eventually that culminated with Lloyd Daniels being shot three times in the chest over a $10 crack deal. Miraculously, Daniels survived, but they said physically he was the ghost of his former self. And so instead of uh, Daniels living out the, the title that everyone said, a future surefire Hall of Fame, one of the greatest to ever play the game, Lloyd Daniels by many is simply known now as the title of the greatest who never was. And there's lots of stories like that in sports. People, young people had incredible potential, incredible promise, but through a series of choices and unfortunate providential events, all of that becomes flushed away and it's incredibly sad when someone doesn't reach their potential that everyone sees in them except them. But here's one worse. It's the realization that you have been given every 
resource you need, every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, but then not to appropriate all that's been offered to you in Jesus Christ. There is not a sadder story on the planet. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you're using, and turn with me this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 3 for a message titled, Making the Most of What You Have. Uh, For a lot of people, that's the appeal of the new year. Uh, It's the opportunity to take potential and opportunities and turn them uh, into realities. And there's no greater place uh, to do that than in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so here, what I want us to accomplish this morning is is a little different than what we normally do. I'm going to do three things this morning, all right? Uh, So number one, I want to take a little time and talk about some goals for us collectively as a church that I would love to see us grow in. Number two, I'm going to do a quick review of something that we taught uh, back on December the 22nd about uh, our new identity in Christ and all that's offered to us. And here's why I'm going to do that, because we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning taking all that's offered to us in Christ that we learned a couple weeks ago and asking the simple question, how do we appropriate that? How do we make the most of what we have in Jesus Christ so we're resolved, this could be the best year we've ever had spiritually, how do we take all this potential and turn it into reality and make the most of what we have in Jesus Christ? So it's a little different this morning, so we're going to do those three things, but I promise you'll get out on time, all right? Uh, several years ago, uh, when I first got here, th- this is hard to even say out loud. It doesn't even make sense mathematically that this Sunday, uh, exactly 10 years ago, I came and candidated in view of a call. Exactly 10 years ago this weekend. I must have not done a great job because it made me come back and preach a second time. I just want to acknowledge that, but I'm not bitter. I've chosen to forgive, all right? And so, uh, so in the last 10 years, part of the rebuilding effort here is uh, I would give kind of a state of the church and say, hey, here's some things that we did we're excited about, but then here's you know, three, four, five things that we're working on this year because we're trying to build new systems, a new process for discipling people. And I haven't done that in, in uh, the last few years, and, and here's why. The longer that I'm here and the longer our ministry team serves together, we have the longest uh, nucleus ministry team serving together in the history of Liberty Heights Church, the longer that we're here together, the more settled our strategy becomes. And so we kind of said, hey, this doesn't work and this works, let's do this. So the longer we're here, that just gets a little more settled. And so I have it given kind of a state of the church and here's new things. So, so, but here is the phrase that, that I would use that's kind of the umbrella of all the goals that, that we have and that I have for our church family. And he, here's the phrase I want you to grab a hold of and I'm, my, where my heart's at this, heading to New Year. It, it's simply this, it's better, not bigger. Better, not bigger. And, and the phrase that we would uh, subscribe to, it's not original with us, um, th- that we would absolutely agree with, though, is to, we're to lend our efforts and our resources to a quality of discipleship, not necessarily a quantity of disciples. Uh, people ask me, as the church has grown and grown the last several years, and how big do you want the church to get? Here, here's the answer I give every time. As big as we can effectively make disciples. That's how big the church should be. I don't worry about the growth of the church. Jesus Christ said he will build his church. And so all of our focus should be on making disciples and let Jesus grow our church. And so the theme that we're leaning into, that we're praying for, working towards, is not bigger, uh, it's better. And so what would it look like for us collectively to get better, to get stronger, to grow deeper in Jesus Christ corporately as a body of Christ. Well, I just uh, wrote down four or five things here that, that I want uh, us to, to consider, and I think if we did these things, we would become better, uh, whether or not we become bigger is often outside of our control. So, so let me just share a couple of these and a little bit of explanation. You can jot these down or just listen, uh, whatever you want to do. So the first goal that I have for us uh, collectively is to increase 
uh, the percentage of members. Now, we, it's hard for us to track non-members or guests or regular tenders, so these are stats with members. Uh, we can track that. So it's to increase the percentage of members connected to groups and those participating in growth classes. So, uh, so here's right now. So of uh, those who have committed to membership, about 53% are connected to a group. And so just a little over half. And so uh, national average, uh, depending on who you read, is between 53 and 55%. So we're dead on average. So does anybody here like being average? Because I don't, right? Like no one starts off the New Year's like, you know what my goal is? Is to be totally mediocre, right? Like I'm not praying for that. I'm not working towards that. I hope you're not planning for that. So we're right at the national average when it comes to people connected to groups. But our goal as a church is that 80% of our members will be connected to a group. So, so I think we can grow and get better uh, in that. Now, when it comes to growth classes, uh, those are the two to three week classes we offer on Sunday morning on key areas of the Christian life, key doctrines to understand, kind of basic Bible truths or basic habits of living the Christian life. Uh, right now, somewhere, we're not totally sure on this, but we think somewhere uh, between 50 and 20% of our members have participated in a growth class. Now, what that means is this, is that 80%, the, the other side, 80% of the people in our church have memorized the Bible and don't need to go to a class. Isn't that encouraging, right? Maybe that's not true, right? So, so we think we can grow better in, in that. So when you see those offered, they're very intentional, what we offer, how long we offer them. And so, uh, so I think that's the way we can get better as a church is to take a step uh, uh, growing in those areas. Here's another stat uh, connected to groups. Uh, one of the goals is to increase the attendance frequency of those participating in groups. And so here's what we've discovered with a little research behind the uh, stats on groups. So of those who are connected to groups, so the 53% of people who have connected a group in a formal way who are members of the church, uh, what we found in digging through the stats is this, is that the average person of those people uh, attends group about 50% of the time. Okay, so, so as far as I'm, I'm committed to a group, those who are committed to a group, they go about 50% of the time that the group is offered. So, so let me just merge those two stats together and let me just tell you what that translates into. If half the people are connected to a group and on any given week, about half the people are actually going to the group they're connected to, here's what that means practically. That in every single week, about 25% or a quarter of our members are participating in a group. Now, now so here's what I would tell you. I think we can do better than that. I think we can do better than that. So I would challenge you to think about that, rearrange your schedule. I know people are busy. I've got four kids. I share that as a prayer request. And so, uh, so I just think we can grow in that, okay? So here's another goal we have. Uh, have you ever heard this stat? This isn't true in church and other places. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Raise your hand if you've heard that stat at some point in time, right? So we're trying to flip that upside down. Our goal is that 80% of our members would be connected to ministry in, in church. Now, we didn't have time on a short week, holiday week, coming back in. We didn't have time to track that. Uh, I would be surprised if it's not somewhere around 50%. Uh, some of this. So doing better than 20, but our goal is 80%. So if you're here and you're a member, you say, I'm not serving anywhere, help us close that gap. God grows us through our gifts and using those kind of things. So here's a, a, something we hope actually to decrease. Right? When you think of goals, you increasing progress, we want this stat to decrease. Here, here's a, we want to decrease the number of members who do not give or give very little. So let me, let me share some stats. Let me uh, say some good things at the front end. Uh, last year, our church set a giving record, like the, the highest offering in the history of the church, and we're grateful to God for that. Um, uh, this year, we broke that record again. So, so, uh, so that's two years in a row. Um, we're in the greatest financial position the church has ever been in since they've been in this building. I can say that with full uh, integrity. The debt's the lowest it's been. Offering's the highest it's been. Most money on hand, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I've been here 10 years, and in 10 years, 
uh, there has not been a year in 10 years where our giving has not exceeded the budget and the church ran budget deficits for the 10 years prior to that. So I'm grateful to God for, for all of that, okay? But when you peel that back, let me just give you some stats. Uh, right now, uh, of members, about 22% of our members uh, give zero. So somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of our members don't, don't give at all. And then uh, we looked and said, well, how many of those give uh, $500 a year uh, or, or less, and so that's less than $10 a week. Uh, another 10% give less than $10 a week. So, so here's what that means. About a third of our folks are giving either zero or, or, or less than $10 a week, about a third of our members. So, so here's what that would be like, okay? I'm not a mechanic, but I understand this. If a six-cylinder car uh, has six uh, pistons that are firing, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, right? So it would be the equivalent of us driving a car, a, a V6, and two of the cylinders are not working, right? That, that, that's what would be a quote. So if you pull in your mechanic and he's like, hey, listen, bad news and good news. Uh, the good news is four out of six cylinders are working. Like, you know what the bad news is, right? Two of them are not. Like, nobody's content with it, right? So when you look at a third of our folks not good, that means uh, two-thirds of our cylinders from a generosity are firing, and about a third of them are not working. So I think that's an area we can grow in. And then here's the last one, uh, a, a renewed effort on training people in personal evangelism and practicing biblical hospitality. Uh, how many of you at some point in time, if you've been a Christian a long time, been in church a long time, my guess is you've participated in what I participated in when I first became a Christian. How many of you at some point in your Christian walk as a church member ever participated on Tuesday night soul winning visitation? Would you just raise your hand? How many of you have been that, right? right? So just put your hands back down. Here's another one. How many of you have ever knocked on a door of a total stranger to tell them about Jesus? Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, don't people love that, right? They're like, they're like, I promise, we're not Mormons, I promise, right? And so, uh, so how many of you have ever, here's another one, how many of you have ever been or worked in bus ministry, been on bus ministry visitation? Anybody work in the bus ministry? Yeah, lots of you, I did that one time. And so, um, so, so here's the reality. What happened is, uh, the church for a long time was very aggressive evangelistically, knocking on doors of strangers, uh, you know, going out and, you know, bus ministry, going, like all that kind of stuff. And what happened is this, what we said is, people don't like that, it's too pushy, it's too aggressive. And so what we replaced that with was nothing. Actually, what we replaced it with uh, is an attractional church model. We're not going to go out and get people and tell them about Jesus. We're going to create this incredible show, a dog and pony show, and we'll attract people to the church. And when they get here, we'll make sure we don't say anything that offends them. Here's the problem with all that. Jesus may have had a ministry of come and see because of unique uh, mission on his life, but the mission and mandate he gave the church was go and tell. Christianity is a missionary faith. All right, and there's no missions that happens apart from people communicating the gospel. So we're gonna work hard at training people uh, in personal evangelism. So when you see opportunities for that, sign up and get equipped for that. So, so those are the things that I'm praying for, for our church, our spiritual family. And here's what I want you to understand. None of those things will happen collectively apart from you taking steps individually. That the collective goal is achieved when individuals take those steps and the overflow is that collectively all of those statistics change. There's a lot of wonderful things going on in our church. I'm grateful to God for God's work in our church. I'm grateful for that. But I think we can be even better, even if we're not bigger, we can be better. And so, so I would just encourage you as you think about the new year and you hear those stats, you say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? What steps should I be taking in 2020? 20. So I just want to take a little bit of time and just challenge us towards those thoughts this morning. But the second thing I want to do is just review a little bit about what we taught a couple weeks ago on December the 22nd. 
Uh, we had a series in Christmas, and uh, one of the last messages was unwrapping the gift of a new name. And we said inherent in that new name is a new identity in Jesus Christ. And once we're in him, all these wonderful promises and truths become available to us. And so what we're going to spend the most time talking about today really is part two of that message. And so if you weren't here, I'm going to take a moment to recap it. If there's a rare chance that between now and Christmas break, you haven't listened to that sermon hundreds of times, Really unlikely, right? Uh, I'm just going to recap that because that's the foundation of what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning. So, so here's uh, what we learned about a quick review of our identity in Christ made available to us. Uh, we learned this. We learned that we're free from not only the penalty of sin, but also the burden of performance. According to Ephesians chapter 1, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and unconditionally loved and accepted. And when we're in Christ, those aspects of our identity can never be changed. We talked about adoption, how once a person's legally been adopted into a family, they can never legally be removed from that family. That's true in Roman culture. That's true in current culture today. So that's the word adoption is powerful. So what we learned is this. In other words, our performance does not determine our acceptance in Jesus. That's a good place for an amen. You totally missed it. All right, so let me repeat that again. Our performance does not determine our acceptance. Church said? All right, that is good news. And so Ephesians chapter one tells us, say, God is the initiator, executor, and guarantee of your salvation. It's totally based on what he's done on your behalf, not on your performance on your end. So, so we learned that true of our new identity in Christ. We also learned this, that we're equipped with new promises once we're in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20 says this, that all the promises of God are yes in him being Jesus Christ. And so in other words, every spiritual promise that's been made available to us in God, that God has made, has become available to us in Jesus Christ and in our union with him. And so we list this long laundry list of promises, all these promises, and even though it was a long list, it was a fractional list of all the promises that are available to us in Jesus Christ. None of those were available to me before I knew Jesus, and all of them are available to me once I belong to Jesus Christ. I was spiritually bankrupt, and now I'm incredibly rich in his promises. So we learned that about our new identity. All these promises are yes in him when I belong to Jesus Christ. And the third thing we learned is this, is we're also equipped uh, with new power and new potential. We gave the illustration, talked about uh, the little kid who gets this gift that you're so excited to give them, great gift, you spend a lot of money, you spend a lot of time looking for it, and all this angst about finding this certain gift they want, and they open it, and you're more excited than they are, and then your child or your grandchild spends the rest of Christmas playing with the box, right? By the way, did anybody have that happen this Christmas? Your child or grandchild just played with the box and not the toy? Yeah, yeah, I hope you spanked them for the glory of God. I just wanna say that, all right? Right? And so the illustration is this. It's like the Christian who is content to go, all oh, my past is forgiven, and they have no idea about Christ's power and provision and promises in the present and living and appropriating all that's available in Jesus Christ. And it's the Christian who, when they think of the gospel, thinks about its power to forgive past sins and has no understanding of Christ in me in the present. And if that's us, then we're like a child playing with the box, not understanding the fullness of the gift. And what we learned is this, good news. Jesus Christ is not just good for life after death, that Jesus Christ offers us power and potential and promises here in the real life that we're living in. Once we're in him, all those things are yes in Jesus Christ. You no longer have to fight sin in your own willpower. 
You no longer have to trust in your own resources or discipline, right? So we learned all of those things. And so I want to spend a little time reviewing all that because it's kind of the foundation of what we're going to talk about today. So, so here's what I want to spend the rest of our time today. For the next two hours, here's what I want to So here's a question I want to ask this morning, all right? Here, here it is. How does that work? I like the sound of all those promises, right? I like the sound of new power and new potential. I like the sound of not trusting in my own willpower, but, but, but how does that work? Like, how do we tap into that power and live out of those promises on a daily basis? What is required of us so that we can appropriate all that's been offered in Jesus Christ? Use the title of the message, how do we make the most of what we have? And so if I'm resolved, and I hope you're resolved, that 2020 is the best year you've ever had spiritually, um, you, you got to ask a question, uh, what's required of me for that to actually happen? How do I take all that's offered in Jesus and appropriate it and live this victorious life that John chapter 10 talks about? Okay, so that's what we're going to look at here in Colossians chapter 3. So we're just going to look at uh, the first three verses kind of a, as a foundation uh, this morning, a little bit more of a topical approach. But we're looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3 where he, uh, he teaches just an incredible truth that we don't talk about enough in the Christian life. Okay, so Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 says this. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, symbolic of God's, God's power, God's authority. Uh, verse two, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And, and here it is, verse three. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What he's describing here in Colossians chapter 3 is one of the most important, powerful, life-transforming truths of the Christian life, yet little emphasized truths at the same time. What he's describing here is what theologians for years have called the exchanged life. It's the same thing. He says, hey, you died. So, so when Christ comes in you, it's not you 2.0. It's not a better you. It's not a new and improved you. So no, no, the old you is dead. And now it's Christ living through you, empowering you to do what you could not do apart from Jesus Christ. It's that exchange life. It's the same thing that Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that familiar verse when he said this. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Do you understand that? It's not a better me. It's not me 2.0 when I get saved. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the uh, exchange life. When, when my exchanging the life I had when I received Christ, the old me died, and I'm now living in the power and the promise and the potential of Christ at work in me. That is the exchange life life. And when Christ takes control of your life in this exchange life, your life takes on dimensions you never would have known apart from him. So, so that, listen, here's my fear. That all sounds good and theoretical. Like, so what practical difference does that make? So let me just rattle off some verses. Here's practically what, what that looks like, that exchange life. Here's the outcome of that. So let me just give you some examples uh, from scripture. Uh, when you're weak, then Christ demonstrates his strength in your life. Second Corinthians chapter 12. It's the exchange life. When you face situations that are uh, beyond your comprehension to understand, Christ gives you wisdom when you ask. James chapter 1, verse 5. You're no longer relying on your wisdom, but the wisdom of Christ in you. When you're faced with humanly impossible situations, God often does the impossible. Luke chapter 18. 
When you encounter people whom you find difficult to love, raise your hand if you know anybody like that. You know anybody like, if you're sitting next to, no, don't do that, <laughs> get ugly, right? You're like, oh, that person's hard to love. But what happens is Christ in me compels me, the love of Christ flows through me, and I love that person, not, not in my own strength, but in the power of Jesus Christ. That's the exchange life. First John chapter four talks about that. When you're at a loss of how you should pray for someone or yourself, the spirit of God intercedes on your behalf. Romans chapter eight, that's the exchanged life. When Christ takes up residence in the life of a believer, listen to this, all the fullness of God, everything that God is and God has, listen to this, all the fullness of God is available to that person. Ephesians chapter three, verse 19. Is that not exciting? I'm looking at your face, maybe not, all right? Like that's exciting that all the fullness of God, everything God has is made available to me once I'm in Jesus Christ. That's the exchange life. I didn't have it before. When Christ is at work in me, I have all those things available to me. The fullness of God, Ephesians three nineteen talks about. So this is the exchange life where we live uh, in a dependent uh, intimacy with Jesus Christ, and then uh, Christ uh, makes his power available to us. So, so here's, here's three practical steps. Like if all that excites you, like, oh, it's no longer me, it's Christ in me, and, and the exchange, like all that's exciting. So, so again, I like practical. So here's the question I ask when, when I think about that is this. Uh, so what does it look like to more consistently appropriate all that Christ offers me in this exchange life. What's required of me to make all of that available in him, all right? So, so I'm gonna walk you through uh, three things uh, this morning. Let me just give you a news flash. None of these things are new. All of these things at some point last 10 years, uh, we've taught them in some form or fashion. So, so I'm not like, hey, I've been here 10 years and finally I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the secrets of the Christian life, right? There's no, there's no prayer of Jabez part two being offered this morning, okay? That all these things we've taught on. So, so, I, so if you hear that and go, I feel like we've talked about it before. We have. My goal today is not to share something new. My goal is to motivate you to actually do these things that you've heard and finally live and appropriate all that's offered in Jesus Christ. And so what are the things that we can do, practically speaking, to appropriate all that's offered to us in Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing I would encourage you to consider is simply this, is that you should pursue intimacy, not obedience, Intimacy with Jesus is the bullseye of the Christian life. And my fears for a long time, people thought obedience is the bullseye and they're trying hard and you know, just trying to be good and trying to obey and trying to follow the rules and all those kinds of things. When in reality, they're shooting at the wrong target. The goal of the Christian life is intimacy with Jesus, not obedience. And the premier passage in the entire New Testament on what it means to experience intimacy with Jesus Christ is found in John chapter 15. So if you're not familiar with this verse or, or this passage, this is a key chapter on Christian living. You have to know where it's at, what it means, how it applies, all those things. So let me read to you a couple key verses out of chapter 15, the Gospel of John. Verse 4 says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide on me. And then verse five is the verse I try to meditate on most mornings and remind myself of these truths. Here's what he says in verse five. Uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. And, he, and this was this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, hey, apart from me, you're gonna struggle 
hey, apart from me, it's going to be harder than it should be to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he says clearly and decisively, apart from me, you can do nothing of any spiritual impact. You cannot make any spiritual progress on your own human effort. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a big deal, right? He says, hey, if you're not abiding in me, you got no hope for progress. you got no hope for bearing fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so again, I like practical. So here's the most practical question I want to ask. What does it mean to abide? Right, like there's certain phrases that we use only in Christian context. Uh, someone smarter than me called it Christianese. Like, for example, nobody outside of Christianity ever talks about pleading the blood in any situation. Did you know that? By the way, that's not even a biblical uh, thought, by the way. But in Christians, we say things like that all the time. Abiding's kind of that same way. Like when you go back to school tomorrow, parents, I don't know if you know this or not, kids are going back to school tomorrow. Did, are you aware of that? Are you there? <laughs> Some of you just shouted for the first time in church in your whole, whole life, right? So, so here's the deal. Um, kids are going back to school. You're going back to the office, some of you. Uh, when someone asks you, what'd you do on your Christmas break? I just mostly was abiding. They're like, what? Right, that's language only we use. So what does it mean to abide? The word abide in the original Greek language, it literally means to remain. And so every Christian remains inseparably linked to Christ in all areas of life. We depend on him for grace and power to obey. We look obediently to his word for instruction on how to live our daily single lives. And so to abide in Christ means we live with a consistent, constant reality that Christ is our life, Christ empowers us, Christ is the one who sustains us. That's what it means to abide. To remain in him is what it means to abide. So, so here's the next question I ask, practical as I can get, right? So, so how does that work? Is this me to sit around all day and like, you know what, I, boss, I can't come in today. I'm, I'm praying all day. Like, let me know how that turns out, by the way, right? People ask me sometimes, like, you know, as a pastor, I've only been a pastor almost 20 years. Well, like, what's different about your house? I said, oh, you know, at my house, I said, usually for about 20 hours a day, we pray and we're not praying. We're reading scripture out loud to people. That's, that's kind of what our house looks like on a regular basis, right? Not true. So what does it mean to constantly abide in Christ? What does it actually look like? So here's what I answer based on John chapter 15, this. Abiding involves our response to the teaching of Jesus. John chapter 15, verse seven said, if you abide in me, and then he gives this qualifier, and my words abide in you. In other words, the word and there links two truths together. What he's saying is, there is no such thing as abiding in me that my words are not constantly abiding in you, in your mind, in your thoughts, in your direction. So here's what that means. That in every facet of my life, my parenting, my marriage, how I handle kids, how have you work, how I handle relationships, how have you the world around me, all those things are governed by my thoughts that are dominated by the word of God. That's what that means. Paul echoes this in Colossians 3.16 when he writes these words. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So here's, here's a nutshell, the most practical way I can tell you. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. That's what it means. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're doing that on a consistent basis... You're allowing the word of God to fill your minds, direct your wills, and transform the affections of your heart. Let me ask you a question. Is not the natural overflow of that type of life obedience? Yes. That if Christ is at work filling my thoughts, 
If the Word of God is at work directing my path, if the Word of God is at work changing the affections of my heart, guess what? I've got a heart that wants to obey in those moments. And so the goal of the Christian life is not obedience. The goal of the Christian life is to abide in Jesus Christ, and the overflow of that will be obedience. And if you're trying to do that backwards, guess what? You're going to live your Christian life frustrated. That's why, as a side note, legalism will never accomplish what it promises. That's why Adrian Rogers, the late Adrian Rogers, used to say this, that holiness isn't the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way to holiness. What's he mean by that? That abiding in Christ is my goal and the overflow will be obedience. So how do I appropriate all that's offered to me in Jesus Christ? Make abiding in Christ your primary passion in the Christian life. Okay, step number one. We're out of time. There's eight points left, and so let's hustle, right? Step, uh, here's number two. Uh, number two, how to appropriate more that's all. Number two is get more grace. You think, well, didn't I get all the grace I, uh, when I received Christ? Listen, you got all the saving grace you need. All your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future, but God offers us more grace to empower us or to sanctify us. We have to dismiss this idea that grace is about letting go and letting God, and the grace of God will do whatever. No, listen, we can get more grace. Philippians chapter two says this, talks about this grace-driven effort He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Yes, God is working in me. That's what he's doing, but what's required of me? Working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Peter chapter 3, beware that you're not carried away by the air of the lawless and lose your own stability. Instead, listen, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can grow in grace is what he's saying there. God's empowering grace. God's sanctifying grace. Paul, who knew more about grace than any person who's ever walked the planet, said this in Romans chapter 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Sounds like Popeye, does it? He said, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But listen to this. So he's just celebrating the grace of God. Then listen to what he says the very next part. But I labored even more than all of them. And so this is a phrase we've said over and over and over. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. And if you want to get all the sanctifying, empowering grace that's made available to you, if you want to tap into what the Bible says is grace upon grace that's offered to you, they're required effort on your part. Here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he's describing this incredible exchange life of Christ in me. But then right after those incredible truths, he lists all these things that are required of you. Look at verse five. What does he say? In verse five, he says, put to death. That's action on our part. In verse eight, he says, rid yourselves. That's action on our part. In verse nine, he says, you've taken off the old self. There's action on your part. In verse 10, he says, put on the new self. Action on your part. Verse 12, clothe yourself. Action on your part. Verse 13, bear with and forgive one another. That's action and effort on our part. Verse 14, put on love. Effort on our part. Verse 16, Teach and admonish one another. That's effort required on our part. And so 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this, that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So how do we tap into that divine power? Let me just offer up three things really quickly. This was in our book of the year a couple years ago. Uh, three spiritual disciplines where we can get more grace. Number one is hearing God's voice. Let me just tell you something. A study that was done several years ago by Lifeway Christian Research, and here's the conclusion. That they said when it comes to producing spiritual growth in people, that the number one habit was daily Bible reading, and there wasn't anything else that was close second. You know what that means? 
you're never going to get the empowering, sanctifying grace to live this victorious Christian life that's been offered to us in Jesus Christ apart from being connected to the Word of God, which reveals the voice of God and the character of God. It will not work. It doesn't work that way. And so when you interact with the Bible... You get the mind of Christ. And so how do I better engage with Scripture? I'm going to teach you something that I learned. The very first Bible study I ever did it was a little hand, and you trace it, and they did this. And so maybe you have this. So, so here's what I want you to I want everybody to raise up your hand and just hold out your fingers just like this. Would you do that right here? Yep, some of you, first time you raised hands in church. That's exciting. All right, so, so here's what I'm doing. We're going to list these five things. You just put a finger down at each one. If you do these five things, you'll have power from on high, right? The first thing when you interact with the Word of God is to read the Word of God. You cannot obey and apply what you do not know. The second thing you should do is not only read, is to pray. That when I'm praying through Scripture, if there's something to confess, I confess it. If there's a promise to claim, I claim it. If there's a truth I need to grow in, I ask the Lord to help me grow. As I'm reading through Scripture, Scripture is me hearing from God, and then God hearing back from me through prayer. The third thing is this, it's to study. Now, what's the difference between reading and studying? When I'm studying the Word of God, I'm asking questions of the text. What does that mean? And why do you say that? And where else that? So here's the fourth one is this, is to meditate. What does that mean? It means to focus thinking on that word. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do I apply that? And here's the last thing. It's to memorize. To memorize. And here's what happens. When your emotions bubble up and say, oh, this feels true. I need to do this. The weight of God's word you've hidden in your heart pushes that down. Say, this is what you know to be true. Live out of that. Right? So we hear from God's uh, word. We have God's ears. The second habit through prayer. You get more grace through that. And the third is belonging to his body. Mathis in his book, let me just quote him directly. Here's what he said. He said, corporate worship is the single most important means of grace and our greatest weapon to fight for joy. He said, more than any other means, corporate worship combines all three principles of God's ongoing grace. His word, prayer, and fellowship. And so how do we get more grace? By by applying these habits of grace into our life. If you want to appropriate all that's been offered to you in Jesus Christ, you've got to avail yourself to the grace of God and these means of grace in your life to empower you to do what you do not want to do. Here's the last thing very quickly and we're done. Last thing of this, third step I encourage you to consider is this, is quit flying solo. Now, let me just say something that, that doesn't sound really encouraging, but it's really true and we all need to hear this. There's not a person in this room, me included, who is strong enough or smart enough to fight sin on our own. And everybody in this room, me included, has a heart that is deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. And God knew that. And so God gave us two tools to fight against our own deceitful hearts. Number one is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse Uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, talks about the word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword, laying bare the intentions and affections of our heart. We're deceived by our heart's affections. The word of God opens it up, uses it a mirror, and the word of God says, no, 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 this is what you really value. And so God gave us the word of God, but the second thing God gives us is the people of God. Now, let me just tell you how this works. People in your life living up in intrusive relationships, here's what they can do for you. They can point out things where what you say to believe and what you're actually doing, there's a disconnect between those things. And let me just tell you a secret. You need that and I need that. Can I let you in a little secret? The person sitting next to you has got some blind spots spiritually. Did you know that? And I do too. And we all need people to speak in our lives in a loving but, but truthful way. Let me just ask you a question. Here's a question. Who have you given permission to do that in your life? And if the answer is no one, then what you're saying is this, I don't need it. 
you're deceived. And I'm going to tell you something else. You're not going to like this, but it's true. I've watched it play out for 20 years of ministry. The people in your life in the best position to speak truth in your life in a loving but firm way to help you fight against sin are the people that live under your roof with the same last name as you. The person, I've told couples this for years, the person best positioned to speak truth into your life is your spouse, and it's also the person you'll resist it from the most. You know why that's true? Because they see the unvarnished us. Your kids see the real you where there's disconnects. Listen, your kids have experienced riding on the way to church and having everybody in the car's life threatened and then walking in and going, hey, how are you? God bless you. This is the day the Lord has made, right? And your kids are like, hypocrite, right? But they're scared, so they don't keep walking, right? They know the drill. First Corinthians chapter five says we need the people of God to offer us correction. And First Corinthians chapter 12 says we need the people of God to offer us correction comfort and encouragement when we're battling sin and unbelief. God gives us the word of God and the people of God. Quit flying so. Listen, you're not gonna do all that you need to do in your spiritual life. You're not gonna become all that God wants you to become with just you and, and your favorite podcast. You know, you know, listen, we don't stream sermons here on purpose. You know why? Because you need the body of Christ in real tangible relationships, not sitting on TV watching your jammies. That's why we, we absolutely could do it. Lots of people want us to do it. We don't do it on purpose. That's why. That's why. Some of you, are, I think you're in your pajamas this morning. I don't know what that's about. So, the, so, so we're done, and I've gone over, and I apologize, so let me just say this. If you make one resolution this year, make it this one. To finally and fully appropriate all that's offered to you in Jesus Christ. Do not be content with an understanding of the gospel that's only good for your past sins. Understand the power of the gospel in the present. Be resolved to make the most of what you have in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, it'll be the best year spiritually you've ever had. It may not be the most pleasant, but it will be the best year you've ever had spiritually. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask two questions. Number one, have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you finally been set free from sin's penalty? and the burden to perform well to earn your salvation, have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then listen, I cannot think of a better decision to start off this new year by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so if that describes you and that's your need this morning, would you confess your sins to a holy God and admit that you've sinned? Would you express a desire to turn or repent and walk away from those sins? And would you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you do that this morning if you never have or if you're unsure if you have? Would you receive Christ for your, as your savior? The second question is this, for those of you who know Christ who've been walking with him for a long time, I just wanna ask you honest before God. Are you making the effort to appropriate all that's offered to you in Jesus Christ? Are you putting forth the effort to get more grace? Are you doing all that's required to live out of his promises and his power? Are you living the exchange life that we've talked about? Or are you trying to do this in your own strength? And if that's you and you're frustrated and you feel defeated, here's the good news. 
Christ is at work in you. Christ can do more in you and through you than you can ever imagine, but you have to do all that's required to appropriate that grace. And so if you're here this morning and say, hey, would you pray for me? I'd love to more fully appropriate all that's offered me. I'm tired of doing this thing in my own strength. I want to live in the power of Christ in me. I want this to be the best year I've ever had. If that describes you, head bowed, eyes closed, would you just raise your hand? I just want to pray for you and encourage you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Lots of you. Let me just pray for you. God, we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that he saves us from our sins. But God, we're also grateful that not only does he save us from the sins of our past, but God, in the present, that all the promises of you are yes in him. And so, Lord, help us in this new year to take the steps required of us to fully appropriate all that's offered in him. God, let us not be content to to know these truths. Let us press toward the mark of living out of these truths. And God, let us be diligent about making the most of what we have. Let, Let us put aside all this living the Christian life in our own efforts and our own willpower. Let, let us put all that aside, Lord. May we be more resolved than ever to live the life of Christ in us. And Lord, whatever progress we make this year, we'll be quick to lay it at your feet because it's Jesus and Jesus Christ alone who changes us. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you're here this morning and maybe you prayed to receive Jesus Christ for the first time, or maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I've I've got some concerns I'm walking through, or I've just got a burden I'm carrying.